We're going to be looking this morning in Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64, if you'll stand together at this time, we'll reverence the reading of God's Word as we look at a message I call, We Need to Meet. We Need to Meet. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You're indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. And may God bless the reading of His Word today as my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> Meetings are a regular part of life. Uh, sometimes the boss might say, we need to meet, and that's kind of scary. Uh, sometimes your spouse might say, we need to meet, or even more likely, we need to talk. Oh, those are the words most husbands really dread for some reason. Uh, because generally it means when something like that comes around that somebody has a problem, somebody has an issue, there's something that's not being done that needs to be done, or something that is being done that doesn't need to be done, and uh, there's a problem. In this case, uh, this is the prophet Isaiah, and it might be kind of surprising to us to note that it is Isaiah who's calling out to God, saying, God, we need to meet. We need to meet. Look at how he begins the chapter, Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to the adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear nor has the eye seen any God beside you who acts for the one who waits for him. Isaiah describes the presence of God as being like a, a spiritual volcano, shaking the earth, shaking the mountains, pouring forth its molten fire, or perhaps in the form of lava, and then moving along its unstoppable course, uh, down to the sea where it causes the waters to boil. And we've seen that play out in many scenes. Maybe you've seen it personally uh, in a visit with the volcano. Most of us have seen it in the pictures and the movies that have depicted it uh, as that lava burns everything in its path all the way to the ocean. It's hard to know exactly what it is that the prophet Isaiah was thinking of. And there's several different possibilities. Obviously, he could have been describing the days that uh, are mentioned in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 16. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain, 
in the eyes of the children of Israel. I'm not saying to you this morning that Mount Sinai was experiencing a volcanic eruption while Moses was on the mountain. Uh, but there was the shaking, there was the smoking, and it caused the people then to consider that this is like a consuming fire, like the mountain is melting. And it not only caused the mountains to shake and to quake and to melt, but it causes the people uh, then to uh, be very, very afraid. Uh, they didn't unfortunately stay afraid very long because it wasn't long until they were partying. If you're not familiar with the passage, go and read it and you'll see. Uh, after a while, they just rose up to play. Uh, that's probably part of the problem of humanity. Uh, the fear of God tends to go away pretty quickly if we're not careful. Could have been that that Isaiah was talking about. He might have been mentioning Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, thinking about what was going to come. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Because sometimes in Scripture, when the Bible speaks of mountains, it uses them as a metaphor. And what it is describing then is governmental structure. Uh, mountains towering over everything, ruling over everything and everyone. <laughs> and perhaps he was thinking of a time when God was going to make all the governmental structure just melt upon the earth. And it would be replaced by the everlasting King of Kings <laughs> and Lord of Lords. And, and what a glorious time that was going to be. I tell you, uh, we think the problems of this world are insurmountable. They're not. <clears throat> They're not. Jesus is going to fix them rather quickly when he takes charge. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Sometimes the mountains are used to speak of our problems, our obstacles, things that are in the way. And if that's the case, then maybe Isaiah is thinking something similar to what Jesus was describing in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20 uh, when he said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. <clears throat> you know, I used to think that mountains formed an impossible barrier. Then uh, that there was nothing we could do to move a mountain. <laughs> Uh, then I saw him build Highway 65 between Branson and Springfield. And I found out if you got enough dynamite and big enough equipment, you can move a mountain out of the way and uh, fill up the valley that comes behind it. That's uh, an amazing thing when you see it. We're an ingenious people. Uh, but Jesus talked about obstacles, that, things that would hinder us, things that would be in our way. And they would melt then like mountains melting down before our faith, faith. Mountain-moving faith. But the fact is that I think uh, for the most part we think of mountains in reference to the strength that we need. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 121 in verse 1 when he said, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. Psalm 72 and 3 the mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. They're speaking of how the mountains represent uh, those times with God where we feel His blessing and His power. Even to this day, 
we still talk about a spiritual experience where we were up on the mountaintop with God. A mountaintop experience. Part of that goes, of course, to the mountain of transfiguration where the disciples saw Jesus transfigured before them. But long before that happened, the psalmist was saying, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my strength. Where does my help come from? Where does my hope come from? Where does my strength come from? It comes from the Lord. And I think probably that's what Isaiah had in mind the most when he was writing this passage and crying out, Oh God, that you would come down, that you would meet with us, that you would show us your power and your blessing, that we would experience you in our life and, and see you working, <coughs> see you in, with all of the adversaries in the world. All of those who are speaking against you and working against you, God, may they all see your power. I stand here this morning with a simple proposition. I believe what our world needs more than anything else right now is a demonstration of the power of God. Oh, how we need it. We should be able to identify then well with what Isaiah says. God, we need to meet all oh, that you would come down. And that you would show us your power and your blessing. When God does that, we can't even imagine what can happen. That's what he says in verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how many times we sing the song, I can only imagine. Isaiah would say, you can't imagine. <laughs> you can't. You can't. Think about it as, as high and as noble as you can. We cannot imagine what God has in store for us as His people. We cannot. Our mind can't perceive of all the glorious things that God is capable of doing. And so, we need this morning to look at these passages. And I want us to look at, in a very simple way, we'll see the promise itself and, and how God promises to meet with us. And then we'll see the problem. First is the promise. Verse 5, you meet with him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you and your ways. You're indeed angry for we have sinned and these ways we continue and we need to be saved. You see, the good news is that God promises that He will meet with us when we meet His conditions. God meets with those then who rejoice in Him. And that's right up front. The psalmist says in Psalm 33 and verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. <clears throat> Verse 12 of Psalm 97, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of His holy name. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and to bless His name. God meets with us when we are rejoicing in Him when we are praising Him, and when we're giving thanks to Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I hope it's this way. When you come into this church and you uh, sit down and we go through our time of worship and praise, don't you feel the presence of God? I do. 
God meets us with us when we are praising Him, when we are worshiping and rejoicing in Him. Regardless, you see, of what our circumstances might be down here, we still have a great and glorious God who loves us and that we have something then to rejoice in, to praise Him, to glorify Him and honor Him for what He has done in our life. And when we do that, He promises then that He will meet with us. He will meet with us. We'll feel His presence and His power. He talks then about how that God will meet with us when we are working righteousness. That simply means when we are doing the right things. Romans chapter 6 and verse 13 says, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under the grace." This is the righteousness of faith that is through Jesus Christ and in Him. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But we stand before Him as His children, as the beneficiaries of His grace. And as we present our members, and He's talking about the members of our body, our flesh. As we present ourselves into God as instruments of righteousness. Say, how do we do that? It's a simple thing. Lord, this is your life. I'm yours. You bought me and paid for me when you saved me. This is your day. It's a gift from you. What do you want me to do for you today? Have we ever asked that question? Or do we let too many days pass where the only thing we have on our mind is our plans, our purposes, what we plan to do, what we intend to do, what we've set out to do. And the thing is that the two things, listen to me, the, th- the two things are not mutually exclusive. You say, well, I can serve God today or I can do what I want. No, you can do both. <laughs> you can do both. Uh, don't you think God knows you've got to go to work tomorrow? Of course He does. Of course He does. It's Monday. Sunday's coming, but it's still Monday. You've got to go to work today, tomorrow. I-, I understand God knows that. But just because you're at work doesn't mean God can't use you. What do you want me to do for you? Today. This is my life. I've given it to you, God. This is my day, but really it's not mine, it's yours. God, what do you want me to do to how can I serve you in righteousness? And when we have that perspective, then then God meets with us. We're not intended to live our life in a sinful way. Although sin does intrude, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. When we are then rejoicing, God meets with us. When we are working righteousness, when we are establishing ourselves to do things righteously, God meets with us. Then God meets with those who remember Him. You meet with Him. That's what He said. Who rejoice and work righteousness, those that remember you in your ways. Now, the concept of remembering God in His ways is perhaps best explained by the passages that warn us about forgetting Him. Can God's own people forget God? Well, apparently, Job chapter 8 and verse 11 says, Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? 
you think about, we're not, we're not all that familiar with papyrus and with the reeds. Uh, uh, let's talk about something we are familiar with in our culture, in our country. Let's talk about cattails. You know what cattails are? When you see the cattails growing, what's that tell you? That's a marshy place. And, and but for the dedication of a fine group of men who keep this ditch mode out here in front of this church, they'd probably be growed up with cattails so high. You couldn't even see it when you grow up because let me tell you, that is a marshy, marshy place out there in that ditch. It's hard to mow. When you see them growing, you know, you know that that is a wet piece of ground and it stays wet nearly all the time. Now Isaiah tells, or Job tells us then, or asks us, can the papyrus then grow up without a marsh? Well, no. Can the reeds flourish without water? No. While it is yet green then and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. You think about that plant that's so much in need of a wet marshy place it dries up and dies it'll be the first to die in the drought so are those who forget God Job says we dry up when we forget God Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 3, the ox knows its owner. This is God saying this, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. God says you've forgotten where your home really is. You can be God's own people and yet go through days and weeks without really thinking about Him at all. It can happen. And when we do, there'll be that time where we begin to long for the blessings of God. We'll feel that dryness that Job is warning us about. We'll feel kind of withered away in our spiritual life. We wonder what's happened. We've forgotten God. But God still promises to meet with us to those who rejoice in Him. To those who remember Him. God promises to meet with us in these incredible ways when we're doing righteousness so what's the problem? We've alluded to it slightly already. Verse 5, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you and your ways. You're in day, indeed angry for we have sinned and these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But we're all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. It's a very famous passage. If we want to meet with God and God wants to meet with us, it shouldn't be a problem for us to understand that the problem is sin. It shouldn't be difficult for us to understand that sin is in the way. In these ways, the, proper, the prophet says, we all continue. In these ways, we continue. He's talking about how that we tend to continue in our sins. I read a story once of a man who grew up. His father was a pastor. He later became a pastor. That happens sometimes. Um, and he talked about how they had some very strict rules in their house, things they couldn't do. And one of the things that was a big no-no was tobacco. 
But him and some of his buddies somehow or another managed to come up with a pack of those little cigar things with the tips on them, he said. And uh, nothing doing, but he was going to smoke one. Snuck around in the alley where he was sure that no one would see him. Lit it up, began to smoke it. And wouldn't you know it, just one of those things the Lord does, he hears that familiar voice <clears throat> of his dad calling his name. What are you doing? Well, quick as a flash, he said, I stuck that cigar behind my back and said, well, Dad, I'm looking for you. Yeah, back in the alley, you know. Kids don't realize how dumb their excuses sound, okay? Any excuse. I'm looking for you. Well, son, what were you looking for me for? Well, I've heard there's a, a circus coming to town, and I want you to take me. I was going to see if you could buy me a ticket. Take me to the circus. His dad reached behind him, grabbed his arm, pulled it out. And he said, son, never ask for a blessing while you're holding on to a smoldering disobedience. Uh, just a little sideline here about tobacco. When I grew up, all the kids thought smoking was cool. The worst thing I ever did in my life was smoke a cigarette. The worst thing I ever did, second worst thing, to take a chew of tobacco. Thank God I, I hadn't had a bit of that in over 20 years now. But I had no idea as a kid what I was getting into, how quick you can be hooked and how hard it is to quit. Uh, and that's true of a lot more things than tobacco and a lot worse things than tobacco. But that's just kind of a sideline. Wish I'd have never taken a bit of it. I don't miss it now, but I missed it for a long time. Some of you kids are fooling with it. I know you are. It, it comes around. It, it's all over our culture. They're marketing it to you just like they market it to us. Let me warn you. Uh, that stuff is highly, highly addictive. It'll hurt you. Just stay away from it. Now, I'll get off my soapbox and get back to my sermon. <clears throat> I'm afraid too often that we're like a, a little boy and uh, we're, we're asking God for blessings while we're still holding on to smoldering disobediences. And that's exactly what Isaiah warns us about. The reason why that God has hidden His face from us is because we've chosen our sins over Him. It's just that simple. But sometimes it takes on a more sinister note because sometimes it has to do with our salvation. And that's what he says. Uh, we need to be saved. We need to be saved, Isaiah says. Sometimes people aren't meeting with God. They don't feel God for the simplest and most profound reason of all. They're not saved. They're not saved. See, we can't deal with our sins before, first of all, we deal with the Savior. Dealing with our sin means that we must come to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered unto you first of all, first of all. That is, it's the priority and it's first in number. First of all, listen, your relationship with God starts with the gospel. If you hadn't been to the cross, there's no other place for you to go but to the cross. <laughs> uh, that's first of all, first place. You want to deal with your sins. 
You've got to go to the Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. We need to be saved. Isaiah didn't say, God, we need to meet, but you know, I'm still struggling with these things, and and, and I need to quit all of them and get all my bad habits straightened out. And after I quit smoking and quit drinking and quit thinking about drinking and quit thinking about smoking, then maybe, God, I, I can come to you. That's not what he said. Isaiah said, God, we need to be saved. I need to be saved. Our people need to be saved. And that's exactly what we need. The sin problem is not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about getting a new life by turning over a new leaf. It's about getting a new you, and that comes only through the new birth, through Jesus Christ. But then even after we're saved, sometimes we don't meet with God because we aren't rejoicing, because we aren't righteous, and we're not remembering God. And that's what he says in that famous passage, is that our righteousness are unclean. Uh, we're fading like a leaf and being blown about by the wind, and uh, what a terrible scene he, pay, uh, he paints for us. And in the midst of that, there's nobody, nobody who's stirring themselves up to call on you. I'm glad this morning the passage doesn't end there. Because it goes on to verse 8. Verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, thou art the father, or the potter, we are the clay, uh, thou art our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Thou art our father, we are the clay. And thou our potter, and we are the work of thy hand. We sing it a lot, and it's always been true. Uh, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. Aren't you glad this morning that God's still working on you? As long as you see he's the potter and he's working on clay. Then when something gets wrong, he can just make it again. Sometimes he has to take drastic measures. And start again. God, help us to be the people who are clay in your hands. Understanding that you can mold us and make us. God, we need to meet. We long to feel your presence and power to see your blessing in our life. See your blessing, God, in our family's life. See your blessing in our church. But what's the problem Problem is, is we're holding on to our sins. And what's the solution? The solution may be that you need to get saved. You need to be born. You see, there's nowhere else for you to go with God until you first go to the cross. But the solution may be to ask the potter to reform me. I've got a problem, Lord. Make it different. Help me.
I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And we get back to that rejoicing, the working righteousness, and remembering you. Let's stand together, please.